Alright, the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Lord willing, we will actually begin the next chapter. Some of you may be saying, is there another chapter in the book of Ephesians? But there is. There is one last chapter here. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to begin reading here in verse 21. We're going to read down through verse 33 or the end of the chapter. As we have been looking at this fruit of being filled with the Spirit of God, and that is our submission both in the church and in our homes. Ephesians 5 verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects or she fears her husband." As I mentioned before, we've been talking about this fruit of being filled with the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God would fill each individual believer in a local New Testament assembly with the words of the Gospel and its understanding. The result of that would be that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And we took a look at the three or four passages that teach us that. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with all the fullness of God. That means we have a long ways to go, don't we? Being filled with that fullness, it results in a worthy walk. Part of that worthy walk is that when we gather together, chapter 5, verse 21, when we are being subject one to another, that's a phrase referring to the local gathering of a New Testament assembly, that as we teach and as we exhort and as we admonish one another in both words and lyrics and music, We are to grow up in Him in how many things? All things. And in that process, we are to be submissive to that instruction as it reflects the instruction of our Bibles. So as we preach and as we teach, not just from the pulpit, but as you are preaching and teaching and admonishing one another, 
we are to submit to that teaching as it is being reflective of our New Testament. We are to submit in how many things? In all things that are in agreement with that New Testament. We are to voluntarily arrange ourselves under one another in the context of the fullness of God. And of course, our Lord himself exhibited this with his Father, did he not? Was he called the servant? He was called the servant. And just a basic attitude of a servant is this attitude or this characteristic of being submissive. And of course, if you want a passage that teaches something like that, you immediately start thinking of Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed, was he not? But he opened not his mouth. He was treated with injustice, was he not? But it pleased the Father to bruise him, not for his sins, but for ours. He bore the iniquity of all the injustices that have ever gone on in the world to that time, in that time, and in the future. He bore the injustice and the guilt of all our sins. And yet he did not open his mouth in complaint in doing that. That is submission, isn't it? And that is being a servant. It is the nature of a lamb to submit. And submission is a fundamental characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit as we are being conformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. And folks, it really makes sense then, since that is a fundamental characteristic of a Lamb of God, that there is a lot of resistance from our flesh in doing that. But all the blessing of being conformed into the image of the Lamb. We've learned that that submission is done not primarily to the authority of which we are submitting, but submission is done unto God in the fear of displeasing Christ. Why is that? Because it is God who has instituted this, did He not? And it is God Himself who has commanded it. So in speaking to the wives, it says, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to who? The Lord. As to the Lord. Every aspect of our walk is preeminently unto the Lord. And so we move from verse 21, which is the gathering of a local New Testament assembly. We moved into the relationship of a husband and a wife. And the Bible is very clear about this, that wives are to walk in submission to their own husbands, again, as unto the Lord. They are to walk with their husbands, fearing to displease their husband in the same manner in which you would fear to displease the Savior. And of course, we talked about that sometimes there is conflict there. And I mentioned the three tiers of submission. That we are to submit in all things that are in agreement with our New Testament in everything. And then there is this attitude of submission that we are to have. And then thirdly, there are times that we actually, in order to please the Lord, we may have to displease an authority. 
But at least up to this point in our nation, that level three is a more rare thing than it is in other seasons of church history. Wives then are to walk in love to their husband with an emphasis on the spirit of submission and in everything manifesting conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. That really has a loveliness about that. But there is also a loveliness when it comes to the husband. And again, as I mentioned before, when he's talking to the wives, when he's talking to one another, when he's talking to the husbands, the children, the fathers, the slaves, and masters, he's talking to those who are in the church. He is talking to professing, believing people. And so what is true in the church that we are to be submissive to the Lord first, then that submission is to be seen in our submission one to another, and then that goes into our homes when we have that same aim, that same ambition with the Lord individually, among one another in the church, to be pleasing to the Lord, our wives wanting to please the Lord in their submission, then the husband is to have the exact same ambition when it comes to the relationship with his wife. Now when we looked at Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33, we noted last Lord's Day that there are only two imperatives in these paragraphs or two commands. Both of those commands are given to what party? To the husband's. So we noted in verse 25, here's an imperative, husbands, love your wives. Then we looked at verse 33, here's an imperative, nevertheless, each individual among you is to, here's a command, to love his own wife even as himself. But in all the other aspects, these exhortations are really exhortations with an implication that it is also a command for every one of us. And it is easy to see when we look at verses 25 through 33, and as we read through it in our scripture reading, when we look at those types of things, it is easy to note that the husband's ambition is the exact same ambition that Christ has for who? The church. Does everybody see that? That's very, very important for us to understand When it comes to our home life, the husband's ambition parallels the ambition that Christ has for his church. And folks, ultimately what Christ has, his ambition for the church, is that the church would bring glory to God the Father in that assembly by the Son Jesus Christ walking a worthy walk. And that worthy walk extends from the church into our homes. Into our homes. Now brethren, for us to do that, we need to understand that when Paul is speaking about these relationships, that his primary teaching is to teach about the relationship between Christ and the church. He's applying it secondarily to our homes, but primarily he is teaching us about Christ's ambition for us as an assembly. And you'll see that, look down in verse 32, when he refers to this mystery of marriage, he says, this mystery is great, But I'm speaking with reference to what? I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. And folks, here's the reason for this. Unless we understand what Christ is doing in the church for His glory, 
we will never understand how to have a proper home life. In other words, it's not the family that's setting the standard for relationships in a church. It's the church setting the standard for relationships in our homes. And it all begins with us understanding Christ's aim for the church. And folks, that shouldn't surprise you when submission is a fruit of being filled, that the Holy Spirit filling us with the words of Christ. And when that happens, we have this fruit that comes out of all this. And then I think it's important for us to understand that no one of us is perfectly renewed in the spirit of our mind on how we're to have this relationship within our homes. Did he not say, if you go back to chapter 4 and in verse 22, that we're to lay aside the old cell, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. That means that we don't come into our Christian relationship with Christ, we don't come into that with a complete understanding about home life. Even if you're raised in a Christian home, you have a better picture, but still, if any man thinks he understands, he doesn't understand as he ought to understand, right? There's always room for growth. So we need to submit our understanding about what is to be going on in our homes. We need to submit that understanding to what the Scripture says that we ought to have. Now before I get into these things, I want to remind husbands and young men, I want to remind husbands what he has already spoken of in verse 23, chapter 5. He says there, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Husbands are the head of their homes. They're not the head. The head is who? Christ. But they are a head of their homes, just like Christ is the head of the church. So that Christ has a certain name for the church. The husband has a certain name for his home. That husband is to be Christ's representative and likeness and men, here's where, here's where the responsibility really lays on our shoulders. We are to be Christ's representative and likeness in every aspect in our homes. That when our wives look at us, when our children, if the Lord grants children in your home, when our children look at us, they see an accurate representation and likeness of the Son of God. Now, will that be perfect? No. Should it be there and be growing? Yes. And people should recognize that image and growing image into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is a heavy burden. The husband being the head of his home is not a call for the husband to lord over them. There is only one Lord. But it is a call to be, and I'm using this word on purpose, a shepherd of your home according to God's eternal purpose. And folks, I'm using that word because 
one of the qualifications to be a shepherd of a church is the ability to shepherd one's own what? Home. And Peter would say to the pastors of the church, you're not to lord over the congregation, but be a, can you fill this out? But be a example. And that's what I mean when I say being a head of our homes, we're to be Christ representative and likeness in everything. Now, we understand that's also true of the wife, right? And it's also to be true of the children, but there is a special emphasis put on that husband as being a head over his own home. Now, all that is in review. You can break down this passage, verses 25 through 33, in two parts. The first part, verses 25 through 27, is that a husband is to love his wife in sanctification. In sanctification. Being made holy, separated unto God in sanctification. And the second part is given in verses 28 through 33, and that is a husband is to love his wife in union with her, or in oneness with her. So let's look at these two aspects. First of all, verses 25 through 27, Christ loved the church in sanctification. Now remember, what we're trying to see, we're trying to discern Christ's purposes with the church, having understood Christ's purposes with the church. Now I understand as a husband, my responsibility within the home. So Christ loved the church in sanctification. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her, that is Christ, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, to this end, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy, she would be holy and blameless. Christ loved the church in sanctification. And folks, Christ did this in two ways. First of all, he cruciformly, What do I mean by the word cruciform? That might be a new word for us. It means in likeness to the cross. Christ cruciformly loved the church in denying himself for her. Husbands, now listen carefully, husbands are to live for their wives as unto the Lord. Husbands are to live not for themselves. Husbands are to have the attitude like our Lord had in the Garden of Gethsemane when He prayed to God the Father, not my will, but thine be what? Thine be done. Husbands are not to live for their own will. They're not to live arbitrarily. 
they are to live for their wives as unto the Lord in this arena. Sanctification. So what is a husband to do? He is to humble himself before the Lord. Or we could word it this way. He is to submit himself to the Lord to serve God's eternal purpose in their homes. Does everybody see that? In other words, folks, the same thing that's going on hopefully right now is the same thing that's going to be hopefully going on in our homes. It's this one thing we do. Our ambition as an individual believer is to live to please the Lord. Amen? A church's ambition is to live for the Lord to one another to please the Lord. And if that's your aim and goal, doesn't it make sense that it just filters down into the arena of our homes? If that's this one thing that you're doing. We are to submit ourselves to the Lord, humbling ourselves to the Lord, Or if I want to quote Philippians chapter 2, taking the form of a servant to God's eternal purpose to see that eternal purpose happen in our homes. And if that's going on, then we should submit ourselves in that home in how many things? In everything. Christ cruciformly loved the church in denying Himself for us. It cost Christ His life to do this. Did it not? Not doing my own will, but doing the will of Him that sent me. A will that was hidden, but now is revealed. That Christ would be all in all in every arena of our lives. That will take a man giving his life for this. It will take a love that's not earthly, but divine. It will take the love of Christ. And every husband who has given himself for this grieves over his immaturity in doing it. You almost wish Christ would just come down and do it (laughs) and not use means like me or you. Because he would be perfect in this. So we're talking about the church. Christ cruciformly loved the church in denying himself for the church. In like manner, a husband is to love his wife in like manner. Secondly, and we'll see this in verses 26 and 27, that the aim of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the sanctification of the church. With this end result, that the church would be presented in all of the glory of God. It says, He might sanctify her, having cleansed, He's already done that in His death, burial, and resurrection. Having cleansed that church, His body, His aim now is to sanctify her. Verse 27, 
so that he might present the church to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. A husband is to live their lives for his wife's salvation. Now please hear me. I'm not talking about justification. He didn't give his life for her to be justified. Christ did that, amen? What do I mean when I use the word salvation? I mean her sanctification. Not her getting saved, but her being what? Her being saved so that she would be presented to the Lord at the end of her days in all of God's glory. We are to live for that. Christ's aim for the church is to be my aim for my wife. How does Christ do this in the church? He does it by the word of His grace. Am I right about that? We're saved because we hear God's word, right? We grow because we hear God's words. It's by the word of His grace being communicated to his wife so that in agreement with Christ's aim in the church, she might grow up in all things into Christ. In other words, the aim of a church is the same aim that is being reinforced where? In our homes. You have a husband and a wife that's being shepherded in a New Testament church by the gifts that Christ has given to the church, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Then the husband shepherds in like manner in his home, supporting what he has heard through the Scripture in the church and what his wife has heard preached in the church and exhorting his home to walk therein. And folks, that really, that really is a beautiful thing. When you have that triangle, when you have the church doing what the church ambition should be, and when you have in the home that same ambition being worked out, it is a beautiful harmony. Now you may want to make a note here in verse 27. Christ's aim for the church is to present to Himself the church in all her glory. <clears throat> what would that look like? having no defilement, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be what? Holy and blameless. Everybody see those two words? Alright, I want you to go back to Ephesians 1. And I want you to look at verse 3 because here's God's eternal purpose for the church. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where? In Christ. These are spiritual blessings. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world with what aim? That we would be what? Holy and blameless before Him. Everybody see that? That's God's eternal purpose. That's Christ's eternal purpose for His body, the church. That one day, the church would stand before God holy and blameless. And what is the husband's end result purpose? 
that his wife would be holy and blameless. Everybody see those two purposes just coinciding here. And folks, this sanctification happens because of the word of truth. Now I want you to go back to John chapter 17. I really would just love, and it would be way more comprehensive than just one message to be able to do this, but to look at how Christ has done this for the church. But I picked this passage because I think it's one of the more clearer passages. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the church. He's praying for His disciples, His his apostles. And then He extends it. He says, I pray not for them only, but for all them who will believe because of their word. He's praying for us. And look at what he says in verse 17. He asked God the Father to sanctify them how? In the truth. That's how sanctification occurs. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. And that's why I said to you, that the way this is done, the way a husband shepherds his home, is through the words of grace. Now look at verse 19. For their sakes, Jesus says, I sanctify who? Myself. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Why? That they themselves also may be sanctified in what? Folks, are you hearing what he's saying? Husbands, are you hearing what he's saying? Christ sanctified Himself so that the church might also be what? Sanctified. So if we're going to make the parallel, a husband, first of all, must sanctify who? Himself. So that his wife might also be what? Sanctified. Okay, now let me put a footnote here. Lest your flesh takes you in places it should not go. Wives, your sanctification isn't ultimately dependent upon your husband. It's ultimately dependent on your relationship to who? Christ. So even if your husband is a lost man, you still are responsible for sanctifying yourself in the truth. Everybody understand that? But remember, I told you that Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5 is to what type of people? Professing believers. A husband cannot shepherd his home to be sanctified if he himself, first of all, is not being sanctified. Do we see that? And folks, you know, you know this from 1 Corinthians 7 when it talks about children in a mixed marriage, and I'm not talking about ethnic-wise, I'm talking about a believer to an unbeliever. Paul says, your children are set apart because of you in that home. 
They are sanctified in the sense that they are set apart for God's working in their life because in that home, they have a believer there in that home in like manner. A home is sanctified because there's a husband there who is being what? Sanctified. That those that are in his home are under the special care of the Lord in his dealing with them, whether it's a wife or children, because of his sanctification of himself. And folks, this is exactly the same way it is in a church. Paul told Timothy to give all diligence to doctrine so that he might save himself. That doesn't mean to be justified. It means to sanctify so that he would be sanctified so that those who hear him will also be sanctified. A husband has to love in this way. And folks, divine love is very jealous in this because it is in agreement with God's will. God is love, is He not? He's holy too. He's other things, but He is love. And that means His divine love is very jealous for the sanctification of the body of Christ. So a husband is to love their wives cruciformly in denying himself for his wife and that his aim is her sanctification and to present her in all conformity to Christ at the end of his days. That is a huge responsibility. Isn't it great, men, to be the head of your home? It is. But it is a deep responsibility. The second way that Christ loved the church is in union with His wife. You'll see that, verses 28 down through verse 33. So husbands ought to love their own wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, Why? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we, the church, are members of Christ's body. So that's why I said that we're to love our wives in union with them. And I want to repeat, that in order to do this, a husband must be single-focused on his own sanctification, on his laying hold onto eternal life. He must be growing. He must be growing in his knowledge of the Lord. And of course, he must be saved. And folks, all of this is because of our union in Christ. When a man and a woman join themselves in holy matrimony, did you notice the word holy? In holy matrimony, they are creating by covenant a one flesh relationship Till death do they part. This has been the way it's been from the beginning. Now I want you to turn back to the book of Genesis chapter 2. I want to look at two passages here. One in Genesis, one in Mark. Because we're talking about this union, this one flesh relationship. Our one flesh relationship with Christ is forever. Our one flesh relationship with our wives is temporal. 
But here in Genesis chapter 2, you know the story. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and the man slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and he brought her to the man. Can you, can you imagine this presentation? Now in verse 23, the man seeing the Lord bring her to him said this, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Does everybody see that? Then it says, Genesis 2 verse 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. Everybody see that? The book of Matthew, our Lord Himself said that verse 24 was spoken by God, not Adam. So in verse 23, Adam says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, and I'm going to use the Hebrew terms here, and I think, I think you'll see this oneness just in the pronunciation of the term. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. God then said, verse 24, for this reason, in other words, because of what the man said and what he recognized, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one what? One flesh. God himself said that. So when Christ died on the cross, we were in union in him, right? When he died, we what? When he was buried, we were... When He rose again, we rose with Him. In other words, His work was credited to who? To us. Why? Because we are members of His what? His body. In like fashion... When a man marries a woman, they become one flesh. Now I want you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 10. Because our Lord is going to bring this right back up in answer to a question from the Pharisees concerning divorce and remarriage. In Mark, chapter 10... He went into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds were gathered there. And according to his custom, Mark 10 verse 1, he once more began to teach them. And he was interrupted. Verse 2, some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And that was a very hot issue back then. And I suppose that we could say that it's still a what? Still a hot issue today. But look at what he says. Verse 3. He answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Everybody see that? Okay. So under the Mosaic Law, was it permitted? The answer to that is yes. 
Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses, he, wrote you this commandment. So permission was due to the hardness of man's what? Heart. Then he says, verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, male and female, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one what? One flesh. What does that mean? Verse 8. So they are no longer two, but what? One flesh. Everybody see that? No longer two, but one flesh. Verse 9. Therefore, because of that, what God has joined together, let no man what? Separate. Two have become one flesh. Man is not to what? He's not to separate that. The only thing that separates it, there is a separator by God. What is it? Death. And every every widow or widower knows that when that happens, it is painful. It's like something being rent out of your flesh. And there are many tears and great sorrow, but also hope. Right? So folks, when we go back to Ephesians, here's my point. My point is this. Is that just like, verse 29, Christ nourishes the church, He cherishes the church because we are one body with Him. Husbands are to do what to their wives? Nourish, feed, and cherish their wives. Many a husband nourishes their wives on chaff. Folks, just like you and I want to attend a New Testament church where we can be nourished, right? So our husbands nourish in our homes. Just like Christ cherishes His church, a husband is to cherish his wife. Why? They are one flesh. If I nourish my wife, I am nourishing myself. If I cherish my wife, I am doing good to who? Myself. Why? We're one. We're one. And folks, you've heard me say this with my wife. Many of you know that my wife has some health issues and I've said to her, I don't know how many times, she probably hasn't counted, I don't know. I've said something like this. Your diseases are my diseases. How could you say that? You look pretty healthy. Because we're what? We're one. 
A husband has to understand that. So if he nourishes himself, he's nourishing his wife. And if he nourishes his wife, he's nourishing himself. Because they're one. They are one flesh. And folks, that one fleshness, now, I don't mean to be inappropriate here, but that one fleshness just isn't the act of marriage. The one fleshness is the marriage as a whole. And a husband can't do that. He can't nourish her properly. He can't cherish her properly unless he himself is being nourished and cherished by Christ himself in a New Testament assembly. That's where it all begins. That's the foundation. The foundation of the church is Christ. It's not our homes. When a man shows the goodness of God to his wife, he's doing good to himself. Look at what it says here. It says, he, verse 28, he who loves his own wife loves who? Himself. Isn't it amazing that you can love your wife cruciformly, sacrificially, giving yourself for her, and in that way you are allowed to love yourself? But when a man lives for himself, he's doing damage to himself. This is how a husband is ahead in his home. This is how he is to love his wife. He is to love her cruciformly for the purpose of sanctifying her. And as he does that, a wife should submit in how many ways? In everything. He is to love his wife sacrificially because he is one with her. And folks, when that happens, what you have is a beautiful reflection of the glory of the relationship of Christ and His church. Now I want to conclude by giving seven applications or emphases that I want to bring out of this section. they will be fairly rapidly. First of all, If everything in a marriage relationship is modeled off of the relationship of Christ and the church, and it is, then Christ and the church is the foundation of a God-glorifying marriage. The church is not based on good homes. Good homes are to be based off of a good church. And that is one arena that we've missed it in American Christianity. We have so emphasized the home as primary in the last 40 years. Are our homes better? No. Because we have failed to emphasize God's eternal purposes for the church. Secondly, If our marriage relationship is to be modeled off Christ in the church, then what happens when a church doesn't know its purpose for existing? What if a church is oblivious to the fact that its aim as a church is the sanctification of the church? What if they don't know that? What if a church doesn't even know the means by which it is to be sanctified? 
which is the case in our churches today. Well, then our marriages will flounder in aimlessness and darkness. Which is what's happening in our nation. Thirdly, fundamentally, the problem with our homes is a church problem. The submission to Christ's eternal purposes begins in the church. But again, here's a footnote. We can't lay blame on the church because all believers in all godly marriages are responsible for their own individual behavior. Fourthly, Christ loves His church and the church is to submit to Christ in fear. Fear of displeasing Him. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit in fear of displeasing Him. When that happens, these two arenas of submission, the husband submitting to Christ, the wife submitting under God's eternal purposes as He nourishes and cherishes her, when those two things happen, that submission becomes a beautiful expression of confidence in God's sovereignty in all of our lives. So husbands, fifthly, love your wife not primarily by putting food on the table, paying your bills, being nice, having fun together. All those things are great gifts. But we're not assured of all those things. But love your wife by living your life to fulfill the mystery of God's will above everything else. You can be poor. You can live in devastation. But this thing you cannot stop doing to live your life for the glory of God by bearing the fruit of the Spirit, being conformed to God's eternal purposes in Christ. You've got to do that. And folks, you can do that anywhere, under any government, under any economic situation, you can do that. And that is what a church is to do. Sixthly, Husbands, your wife should categorically know that this is your aim. If I was to get your wife off in a corner where you could not hear her and she knew that she could not be heard, and I said, tell me the one thing your husband lives for, what would that wife say? Would she say, my husband lives to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He feeds himself. He listens in church. He takes in the words of God. Those words live in his life. And he wants that for his home. That would would be a great thing, wouldn't it, men? You young men, one day you'll have a home and this will be your responsibility and you better start with, right now, developing that one thing in your life to do. And you don't have to be a preacher to do this. You can have any vocation under the sun that is scriptural and do this for the glory of God. And lastly, Your wife should know 
that your aim for her is to be conformed into Christ's image. So that she would walk worthy of Him together. Did you hear that? Together. Both of you walking worthy of this calling that God has called you to do. That would bring glory to God in the church by Christ Jesus. The living out of God's eternal purposes for the church, taking those eternal purposes into a home of a husband and a wife so that they are walking together in Christ. Let's pray.